was debating where to go this morning, but I thought I kind of started through 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, so as pastor has uh, been away and allowed me to preach, I kind of have been moving through 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. And so that's where we're going to go, back into the book of 2 Timothy. And so I encourage you to turn there. Pre-COVID, there were about 1.5 million heart bypass surgeries performed every year. The interesting thing about that is that the vast majority of the patients were told by the doctor that a few simple changes of diet and lifestyle, and they could go on to enjoy a a healthy life. Now, the sad reality is 90% of those patients made no change at all. And the doctor would tell you in that decision that they made, they chose death not life. Make a few changes, you can live an active life. You can have a healthy life. You don't change, and this is just going to continue to perpetuate the problem, but 90% chose no change. It's an interesting statistic. It's kind of alarming, actually. So in the middle of their stock, shockingly, probably their unbelief. They don't really believe it, because if they really believed it, they probably would change. Well, I say all that to say there's two books that I was just reading and part of a church revitalization series, but there's a, a, a book called the, the Autopsy of the Deceased Church. That's a really encouraging title, right? <laughs> We're going to cut up the church and see why it bled out. Well, that's really what it is. It is documenting the churches that have closed, have bled out, and, and statistics. And that book was published in 2008. So a little over 10 years later, the follow-up was an anatomy of a revived church. And one of the alarming realities of this this study is that we know that back in 2010, it was was estimated that somewhere around 10% of churches in America, now that's a broad sweep, okay, were in dire trouble. I mean, they were losing, bleeding out members. They were were headed towards death, uh, clearly sick, not healthy, and probably going to close their doors. So books like the autopsy of a deceased church. Other books like that were trying to document why, what's happening, why is the church in decline. Uh, We can blame a lot of things, but basically these were coming back to the reality. The church lost sight of her mission. And in the context of losing sight of her mission, she's forgot why she exists. Thus, the church is unhealthy, and it's made, it's turned a very inward focus to the reality of church. So we have churches that get divided over all kinds of internal political or comfort or convenience or all kinds of issues that steep into the church because we made church about us, not about Jesus, not about the advance of the gospel, but about us. And so the church isn't healthy. You think you might want the diagnosis, maybe we ought to change a few things. Ten years later, 20% of churches in America are on the verge of dying. They chose death, not life. So as we're looking at this text, and it's a call in the text to remember Jesus Christ, one of the only places that Paul reverses the title. Normally he says Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. And here he says, remember Jesus Christ. It's a stunning declaration. It's actually a command. And it's a command given to Timothy in the context of the fact Paul is rapidly approaching his own death, and he knows it. It's his final imprisonment, and he is going to give his life for the gospel. He is going to pour it out. He is being poured out, he says. 
And he is referring to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he is writing this final letter of charge and of encouragement and of challenge and of equipment to Timothy, who is standing in a difficult place. His mentor is not long to be around. Really, the passing of an apostolic age is drawing near. And the church is facing challenges like it had never seen. I mean, it, it had begun. Paul, Timothy's been there a while. This is, and he's faced the challenges in Ephesus and false teaching has come in. And there's, there's persecution that's arising in the Roman Empire. There's all of these factors that are putting pressure on the church. And Timothy is a leader, obviously, and he is in Ephesus to lead in the midst of that kind of context. And so in the midst of the difficult context, Timothy needed instruction from Paul. He needed to be told to choose life, not death. Remember to live. Remember why you have life. And then spend it well. You have life for a reason. So will you spend it well? And in second, we began in this second, Timothy begins with this command. To Timothy, one of the needs is to be strengthened by grace. And Timothy is commanded in the second chapter, in light of the difficulties you're facing, in light of the opposition, in fact, in the first chapter, he invited him, and I always love the invitation, join me in suffering. That's usually, you know, those, we get invitations for all kinds of things. We just did like two weddings last weekend. We're at a wedding again yesterday. Uh, so we got, this is wedding season, and I'm not even sure how many more are coming, but uh, those were the ones that were on our docket. Uh, So you get all these invitations, but I have yet to receive in the mail an invitation to tell me, come over and join me in suffering. I don't know what I'd do with it. You know, I really don't. I still, I think I've told you this story before, but we had a a guy in our church I pastored in Florida. And, you know, we all do the, we all do the lie to each other thing every Sunday morning. You know what that is, right? How are you doing today? Great, great. How was your week? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was good. It doesn't matter what happened. I mean, the dog died. Something else ran away. You got a diagnosis. You come into church, and it's all bad. And you're like, how are you doing? And you smile, and you go, I'm good. Why? Because you know that's what you're supposed to say. Well, I had a guy named Richard in our church, and you'd go up, shake his hand, and say, Richard, how are you doing today? And he would go, miserable. And people did not know what to do with that. They just smiled and said, good, and walked by. <laughs> So somebody's going to take me up on that. And you're gonna, I'm going to ask how you're doing. You're going to tell me miserable. And I'll just walk by and say, great. No. But we, I mean, we, we do this, this, this whole, we, we put on the facade of life being good. And Paul isn't doing that. Paul's in prison. Timothy, you're facing a difficult task. But here's the deal. Grace is greater than sin. And grace will enable you to actually live in the midst of the brokenness of the world and live for the very purpose for which you've been called. So you don't have to get sucked down the proverbial rabbit hole of defeatism or, oh, we're, you know, it just isn't, the, this isn't the good time for the gospel or this is, you know, we got to kind of go have our holy huddle. No, we've actually been called to engage a culture that's hostile to the gospel and that's not new. It's new to us right now at the level of hostility we see in American culture. For many of us lived in a time when that wasn't so much the case and the level of hostility we see rising in our culture is a little new to us, but it's not new. In fact, it is the very environment we've been called on to serve in. Timothy was serving in such an environment. 
So when we get this command to be strengthened by grace, we're, we're actually learning the secret. We talked about this last time I preached, to live a grace-filled life. Because as those who have been called on, and if you look at, for, you're looking in chapter 2, we're called on to take and be disciple makers. It shouldn't surprise us. In 2 Timothy 2 and 2 is to say, take what you've been taught, give it to faithful men, that will be able to give it to others. I mean, it's the whole process of discipleship. You're supposed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, all disciples are supposed to be disciple makers. That's who you are. That's not just something we do. It's actually who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're engaged in the ministry of discipleship, you're growing yourself, following a disciple, you should be engaging others with the gospel, seeking to make disciples because that's who you are now as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is going to be resisted. It's going to be resisted. It was resisted in Paul's day. It was resisted by T- in Timothy's time. It'll be resisted by the culture. It'll actually be resisted even within the church. Remember, Paul warns Timothy, time's coming when people don't want to hear good doctrine. They're going to accumulate teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. We got a lot of those in America. (laughs) We do. We have a lot of those out there. They're telling people what they want to hear. They're not teaching truth. We, We live in that kind of day. It's not new. So to do what we're called to do, there's going to be resistance. We're called to be good soldiers. Well, you know what? Good soldiers still die. But they actually believe the cause for which they live is worth dying for. And so we're called to be a good soldier. doesn't mean good soldiers don't die. Paul was a good soldier. He ran the course. He finished the race. There was laid up for him a crown of righteousness, but not to him only, but to all who are loving Christ's appearance. We're called to a fight. We're called to engage in a battle in the advance of the gospel against the forces of darkness. We live in that kind of world, and we're told not to get entangled with all the temporal things because we actually have a mission that's worth dying for. Do we believe that? The reason why the church is dying in America is because it doesn't believe that anymore. The idols of comfort and convenience have swept in. We make church about us and our programs and how it serves us, and we actually have forgotten that this is a gospel advance into a hostile culture. This isn't a a passivity into a, a culture that's actually kind to us, that had a Christian oaring to it, and we just join culture and advance the gospel. No, this is a countercultural movement. It calls on us not to rescue a culture, but to rescue people who are lost in a culture that's lying to them, perpetually lying to them. And you've been called to take the truth as a soldier, to believe the cause is worth living for or even dying for. Been called to, to compete according to the rules, <laughs> to be a, a good athlete, to win the prize isn't to cheat. That simply means you've been called to live according to the will of God, not your own. You were bought with a price. You do not belong to you. This world will not operate on your agenda. You've been rescued from such a life that you can live for Christ. We've been called to be hardworking farmers who actually get to enjoy the fruit now. First, to enjoy the fruit. And I spent a little time in that review because what I want you to remember is we're going to be looking at a call to remember Jesus Christ. 
who is the example, I mean the example par excellence of what a grace-filled life is. And he did all of these things. He trained up faithful men. He was a good soldier who never quit, endured to the end, and even gave his life for the cause. Rose in victory over death and sin. He actually is one who competed. He did the will of God, not his own. That's a little mixed metaphor because he is God. And he did enjoy the fruit of seeing people saved raised from the dead, healed. He enjoyed the first fruits of a fruit that would be a bountiful harvest for all eternity. And then he goes to Paul, who, again, you can walk through these things, and Timothy is the product of, what? Paul training faithful men who will train other faithful men. Paul is one who is a good soldier, who is giving his life for the cause. Paul is one who has competed. He is one who is righteous. In fact, he could say, follow me as I am following Christ. I'm a follower of Christ, and you can follow my example. He is one athlete who has lived his life worthy of imitation. And he's one who enjoyed fruit. Like the hardworking farmer, he enjoyed fruit in the time of his ministry with knowing that there was going to be much more fruit in the days ahead. So as you think about those things, remember you're being called to remember these examples, and these examples actually did exactly what Paul is commanding Timothy, be strengthened by grace, and when you are, and I make the differentiation that becomes Paul in Christ's example, because when we look at Christ's example, there is an out for all of us. He's God, we're not, okay? There's only so far I'm going to follow that example, But he is perfect humanity. He is the example of what humanity is to be and how it's to live. And you say, well, he is God. Well, Paul isn't. But he is one who has enjoyed the grace of God, his relationship with Christ, and he lived out that example following Christ. So in all of that, I'm just saying, when we look at this call to remember this example and live it, we don't have an out, okay? So I'm trying to take away. Get your out. No trump card here, okay? No, 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 that doesn't apply to me, hopefully. Hopefully we can see that. But as we look at the text, so we're going to be looking, remember, the call to remember. And again, this isn't like, and I appreciate Pastor preached a great message last week on God's remembering love. And it's not like God ever forgot you or ever can. God knows you. He keeps his promises. We'll see that rehearsed in this text as well. And that God's promise to be with us forever is actually a promise that you can count on. Biblical hope is not hope-so-ism, it's actually confident trust. Because we actually know the promises of God will be fulfilled. Christ will be with us, and he is going to keep us to the end. And so as we look at these promises, this call to remember Jesus Christ is not like you're you're forgetting something. It it really is uh, illustrated a couple other texts, the, the whole idea. So Jesus would say, as he's really dealing with disciples, they're struggle to live by faith. They, they're in the boat. They think he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's like, don't you remember anything? Don't you remember all those people and the five loaves and how many people were, were fed? I don't struggle with provision. And they're like, oh, we get it now. The leaven of the Pharisees is our teaching. It's not that we forgot bread. Sometimes the decide, it makes me feel a little better. Sometimes I'm a little slow to pick something up. It takes two or three times to get it. 
You know, so they struggled too. I mean, they were actually with Jesus, and he's telling them something pretty plain. You'd think they would get it, and they were kind of oblivious. But he said, remember, and it wasn't a fact they forgot. They saw it. Recall that now and consider the implications of what you saw. He's not saying to Timothy, I I think you forgot Jesus. It's not saying, Timothy, do you remember that guy we believed in? You forgot him, didn't you? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy, you need to be strengthened by grace. You've got all this opposition. You live in a fallen and broken world. The opposition's only going to get worse. People are going to wax worse and worse. The closer we get to Christ's return, this isn't going to be an easy ministry. Why should you expect it should be? Remember Jesus. Remember his life. He went to a cross and died before glory. Why do you think the world's going to treat you better? Why do we think we got a bad deal? Why does the idea of actually all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution is one of those verses we would like a penknife for? Because that should not include me. Why is the invitation to join in with Paul in suffering one of those invitations we're like, I hope that doesn't include me. Why do we let, in a culture that's increasingly gospel hostile, tell you in the workplace you can't talk about Jesus? Last time I checked, we do have First Amendment rights. You might lose your job, but I actually know who controls your job. It's not your employer. Why have we bought into the lie that comfort is really something worth sacrificing for? Why have we become so convenient-oriented? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm at first window of Chick-fil-A. By the time I get around there, food better be ready and ought to be hot. We live in that kind of world, and so we bring all of that into church. We want church to be comfortable. We want it to be convenient. We want all of these things. And we've actually been called to be soldiers, being equipped. We come to church to be equipped for battle. And you're called to go out into the battlefield all week long and engage people in the battle for their souls. And if we don't speak the truth to them, you can guarantee the culture is not speaking truth. They're being lied to every day, bombarded with message upon message that's telling them they can live out their own reality. They can define truth for themselves. They can define happiness for themselves. They can have it their way. And that's not a Burger King commercial. It was. I hate Burger King, but that's a side note. Sorry. (laughs) Some of you I just offended. Excuse me. Uh, But we're called to remember the context in which we live. I mean, we look at, I think I put it here, yeah. So here's, in Matthew, Jesus is preparing the disciples for this very reality of the life that they're going to live. He tells them, look, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's going to go well. Aren't you glad you got a great shepherd? The one who remembers you, our rock and our refuge, so we are sheep. We look tasty, folks. Some of you are really look tasty, all right? So the devil's out there saying, I'm ready. The wolves are ready to pounce. But you know, you have a great shepherd. But he's sending you out as a sheep in the midst of the wolves. Be wise. Be innocent. You'll be hated 
by all men for my sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. We'll see that endurance theme come up again. A disciple's not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's not enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? You have not been called to be liked. You've been called to be a truth teller. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be obstinate about it. I don't wear the kick me sign. I don't wear the belligerent sign. I'm not trying to be belligerent with truth. But the truth is not going to be welcomed. Why should I expect it to? And when you step up to speak truth, why do you expect to be thanked for it? I expect opposition, but this is the thing I know. The gospel still prevails, does it not? Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Don't fear what people can do. The worst thing they can do is kill you. You say, that's pretty horrible. Yeah, it's pretty horrible, but you know what I have? I have life that cannot be destroyed by death. I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That cannot be destroyed by men. What I have that's forever cannot be touched by men. And the other side of it is Jesus is still my rock and refuge. My life's not going to be taken by men any time before he decides it shall. They're not in control. He is. So don't fear those who can't destroy what really matters. But you better fear the one who destroys all of it. Because the one who endures to the end is actually the one who is saved. Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. You're going to hear these words again. No accident. Paul's going to recall them. These are the words of Christ preparing us for the kind of life we're to live. The reality of living in a broken world in a hostile culture. Do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Aren't you glad you got the sword of the Spirit? You don't have to go fight your unsaved co-worker. It's not what it's talking about. You don't have to go fight your unsaved neighbor. You're actually supposed to love them. But part of loving them is pulling out the sword of the Spirit and speaking the truth to them. We've been called to fight a battle that demands that you actually take the sword out of its sheath. Quit hiding it. It demands you actually have to speak it. And then it may bring you into conflict with people who are rejecting it, but don't be in conflict because you're the one trying to be contrary. That's why you're to be as gentle as a dove. We're gentle, we're kind, we're loving. But we still bear a sword. And we're bringing the truth to a world that desperately needs to hear it. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want to make life about here and now, comfort, convenience, pleasure about you, then you will lose your life forever. That's what Jesus says. If you're going to find your life in this world, that's what he's talking about. 
If you make your life about the here and now, that's what you're living for, then you will have had your treasure. But you will lose everything forever. The casualties of the warfare we're talking about die forever. It is not forever living in an alternative place than heaven. The lake of fire is eternal death. There is eternal life and there's eternal death. Everybody you meet either has eternal life or they're sentenced to eternal death and the only hope of them being rescued is the gospel. The only thing that can rescue them is Jesus. Remember Jesus who rescued you. Remember the one who lived this grace-filled life and his example you're to follow. He called you to be followers of himself, learners who imitate his life's example. We're to live as he lived. We're to walk as he walked. We are vitally connected to Christ who is divine and we are the branches and without him we can do nothing that is worth doing. Life is not about a personal agenda. It is about a rescued agenda. A rescued life that now will lose his life and find it and keep it forever. Tells us that Jesus is this one we're to remember, the example we're to follow. Remember, he's risen from the dead. He's the victor and so are you. If you're in Christ Jesus, the victory has been won. Hallelujah. We're here on Sunday. Why? Because it's Resurrection Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday every Sunday. Amen? We worship today because our Savior defeated death and sin. He rose in victory over death and sin. And so that we can face with confidence the coming day of our physical demise without hopelessness or despair. The fear of death has been conquered. You have nothing to fear. I know we live in a bombardment of everything you're to fear. There's some new super virus that's probably around the corner. There's some new candidate. I mean, there's all kinds of policies that are going to be thrown at us. There's all kinds of things that are coming. And there's digital currency. And there's you might lose all control. And you have none anyway. So it's okay. You never were in control. You can't control the value of the money. You can't control the value of the stock market. You can't control what the politicians are going to do. And I don't say that to say let's be pacifists and don't do anything. Let's be involved citizens and be the best citizens we can be. But just remember, I have a higher citizenship. I have a citizenship in heaven, and I have a fundamental loyalty to Jesus Christ, which means to the gospel. Let's go share what actually will make a difference. It will not be my political views. It will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, and it alone, rescues people from death. Jesus defeated death. Folks, people are hopeless. They got no message of hope. There's no message of hope in do what you want, be what you want. They're desperately trying to be something that they think might bring them pleasure, and none of it does. They're without hope. A good friend of mine does a bus ministry. I mean, he does a ministry to homeless and uh, to addicts and to prostitutes on the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma. A young man he just met this past week, and the guy moved up to fentanyl now. 
It's his drug of choice. They found in Facebook pictures of him three years ago. He's been doing fentanyl now for three years. They showed him pictures of himself three years ago and pictures of him now. He's in his early 30s. He looks like he's 60 years old. And that transformation happened over the last three years. They showed him pictures of himself and said, see what this is doing to you? He wept. He thanked them. But he still chose death. The world's filled with people with no hope. And we sit in a room here, hopefully, the vast majority of you here know Christ. You're filled by the very spirit of the holy God who lives in you. You have hope. Who are we ministering that hope to? You say, that guy didn't get saved. No, he didn't. Not yet. But he knows where there's hope now. He heard the gospel. He knows the people who will love him in spite of his addiction and who will tell him the truth and help him get off if he will but choose life. And I could tell you the other side of the story is people they've rescued out of that life that have been clean and sober and off drugs, now working and back restored with families. They are taking the gospel to the most difficult places that most of us would never go. Why? You got to keep the gospel in our clean suburbs? Clean neighborhood? Do you think your neighborhood's really that clean? How many neighbors do you even know? Like, no. Their name. What they do. Where they work. Who their kids are. How many do we even know? Where will we take the gospel? Where are we taking the gospel? You want to know why the church is dying? Because we're not taking the gospel anywhere. We're keeping it to ourselves. It's not a family secret. It's a treasure to be shared. We're treating it that way. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did. And that's what we're called on to do. You see it in the text, as he said, to remember Jesus as preached. The offspring of David is preached by my gospel. Just remember, you put the language together, it's preached by my gospel. The gospel's been delivered, and it is to be proclaimed. That's the point. It's been given. You can't possibly be in Christ Jesus unless you receive the gospel. So you receive the gospel. If you can't explain the gospel to somebody else, it's not possible that you actually believe the gospel. So if you're saved here today, if you actually have turned from sin and trusted Christ as your Savior, if you know what I'm talking about when I make that statement, it's a simple statement. If you don't, then it certainly is our prayer that you would want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, what it really means to be saved. Not to be religious, not to have God talk, not to have some church membership. I'm talking about knowing Jesus Christ. To know Christ is to be redeemed from sin and be made alive in Christ, and that means a whole new life. And it's a whole new life lived for Christ, lived with Christ and for Christ, and it is one that then proclaims that good news to others. And in many ways, if we're not proclaiming that good news to others, we're living counter to our very reason of existence. We're choosing death, not life. As by the seed of David, the point of that is simply this, is that God keeps his promises. A Davidic king was coming, and he came. The one who would be the suffering servant, who would pay, give his life as a ransom for sin, came. God keeps his promises, amen? He keeps his promises, which also means Jesus is coming again. 
He's the one coming again. He is the one who's risen in victory over death and sin. And Paul says of that in Colossians, that because he is that one who defeated death and sin, to him is owed first place, the preeminence over all things. He comes first. And when he's not coming first, you're not living like an athlete according to the rules. You're not competing well. You're not being a good soldier if he doesn't come first. So he is to have the preeminence because of who he is and what he has accomplished. And then you have nothing to fear because you have a kingdom that's coming. And it is coming, folks. Jesus is coming again. Amen? It's not a maybe. Jesus is coming again. Unbelief is going to be destroyed. You will dwell with God in a kingdom in which there will never again be sorrow. I can't even imagine that. I hardly go a day without reading a story or hearing somebody that I know and I love who isn't going through sorrow. I don't have to just watch the news for it. I simply know people in the midst of their sorrows and the brokenness of life in a fallen world and they're in the midst of sorrows, but the day is coming when that will be done. No more sorrows, nothing that causes pain, and that is as certain as Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we're here. And in one sense, we assemble in the presence of God each week to declare we actually believe that. The question is, are we living it? That's the point. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember, in the midst of the brokenness and the difficulty, remember. Call to mind his life. Call to mind his example. Live the gospel Proclaim the gospel. It is for what we have been called. He moves to Paul's example because, again, Jesus is God. So maybe we need another example. Well, we see a grace-enabled life, and we find it in Paul. I am suffering. Not I shall. Not I might. I am suffering. That's Paul's declaration. As a prisoner, bound as a criminal, I am suffering. I am bound. That is my condition. That's Paul's testimony. But here's the other side of it. The gospel is never bound. Isn't it amazing? I mean, Paul said in his first imprisonment, he told the people in Philippi, look, this served to advance the gospel. It's not what the Romans planned. They're going to put me in prison and they're going to sequester the gospel, but that's not God's plan. I'm in prison, but the gospel's going forward. And you know what's happening? All these other people are being emboldened. And the gospel's going forth, and Paul rejoices because people are being saved in prison. I mean, the guard's got nowhere to go. Paul's talking gospel. Folks, some of you have people working in a cube right across from you. They're not a prisoner. Well, maybe not, but if they don't show up at work, you might find out they, they don't have anymore. But they have a gospel-leaving person right across from them. You know what? You get to do every day sow seeds of the gospel in that person's life. Every day. You get to sow seeds of the gospel. Talk about your hope. You know, there's lots of ways of sharing the gospel without just saying, you're a sinner, needs to repent. That's true. Might not be where you want to lead. Maybe you want to lead with how God rescued me. Have you written out your testimony? Like, have you written it out, ever? Do you have a three-minute or four-minute edition of it? I mean, one of the things I make our systematic students do is they 
I teach in the seminary, so my first semester, and I, I tell them that one of their first assignments is to share their testimony with their professor, video, and I tell them, write out your whole testimony, but then condense it to three to four minutes. If you go over four minutes, you fail. <laughs> you can't have a beyond four-minute testimony. Sorry. No. I, I don't, they don't fail. But I just say, keep it to three to four minutes. Why three to four minutes? Because you can share the gospel in three to four minutes. You can. You can share your testimony and the essence of the gospel in that time. And here's the other side of it. Learn to share that three-minute testimony all the time. Because the vast majority of people you meet are not going to be offended when you took three minutes of their time. Ever. They ask that open-ended question about, tell me about yourself. You're ready. Let me tell you, you want to know about me? I'm going to start with my relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's who I am. Is that where you start? We typically don't. We start with, you know, I'm a son of somebody. I work here. I do this. We primarily start with what we do vocationally. But why wouldn't we just start with, well, first of all, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you quickly what that means. It means as a junior in college, I, I was, went to a, a Baptist school because I went there to play baseball, and they let me play on their team. I made the team. It was a low rung. I could get there. <laughs> I, I went to play, and God put me in a college that had required chapels, and I heard this gospel. I heard about Jesus and my sin. You know, right in the middle of all that, my aunt died. I was at a funeral. I heard the song Amazing Grace, and I had no idea what that grace was. But I started hearing about that grace, and I had a Bible class, and I, and I, I listened to the preaching, and, and then I, I understood I was a sinner who needed a Savior, and Jesus is a great Savior. And as a junior in college, in front of, in a college auditorium, I got on my knees and asked Christ to save me, and it changed my life. It rescued me from destruction. That's who I am. I don't think I took more than three minutes. You can share the gospel in three minutes, folks. Are we? Church is dying. I'm not talking about Gateway. I'm talking the church in America is dying. It's sick, cancerous. It's so self-absorbed. Every week, two to 3,000 churches, well, it's, no, it's like 700 churches, I don't that. 700 churches are closing their doors. Just church after church, community after community, churches are closing their doors. Some of them need to close. They do. They ceased being a church long ago. The only reason why Gateway should continue to exist is if we take the gospel to Traveler's Rest. That's why we're here. We have an address. We have a building. We hope to have a new building. I love buildings. I love building projects. Buildings don't talk back. Kids do. Other people do. Buildings don't. I love building projects. I love the fact that at the end of the building project, generally speaking, it looks better. Now, I've had a few people volunteer to paint that when they were done, it was like, I wish I'd never asked that person. All right, so we'll get on and repaint it. If that's you, then don't volunteer for painting, okay? I'm not picking on you. Just don't, okay? But, I mean, at the end of a building project, things look better. You're dealing with people's lives. They're broken. They're messy. It's okay. So was yours. So was yours. And to many degrees, so is yours. The gospel rescues us. That's what it does. Paul's life was a life of it showed us what it means that the gospel is not bound. 
It advances. And, and that's the other side. Folks, listen, I know the culture's gotten hard. In many ways, it's aggressive and the aggressive messaging of so many. And it, it makes us almost feel like we got to shrink back. Well, they just don't want to hear it. Well, here's the good news. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. You know, here's the great news about the gospel. Jesus Christ can open any heart. Those people that my friend is going to, they're the hardest of heart in one sense. They've given their life over to addiction. They're living on the streets. They've chosen to live that way. Many of them, some of them victimized, some of them through all kinds of circumstances. They have incredible stories, but they're in the middle of all their brokenness. And you're thinking, that's the last person that's going to get saved. That's the problem with our thinking. We think that guy at work is so hard or this person, the neighbor is so angry or this is happening. They're not going to get saved. You're not God. Jesus, remember him. He opened the blinded eyes. He healed. He raised the dead. You get to be in a raise the dead ministry. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I don't know about you. I, I mean, I kind of like some of the, you know, there's different stories and, I, and, and you know, I don't want to get into the movie genre, but, the, you know, everybody wants the super weapon. You know, I got the one super weapon that's going to wipe out all the enemies. Yeah, and I, I become the hero or they want the superpower or they want to have the super gift. You have a superpower. The Holy Spirit dwells in you with the gospel that raises people from the dead. What are you afraid of? Do you know what? Their unbelief is not greater than the gospel. Their hardened heart is not, not so hard that God can't rip that heart of stone right out and give them a heart of flesh. He did that for you. I was not going, I didn't go to college because I wanted to believe the gospel. I didn't go to a Baptist school because I hoped to get saved and one day be a pastor and then train pastors. I had none of that was on my radar. I was a rebel against God, happy to be there, so I thought. I had plans to make money and all of these different plans in industry and business, and that's what my plans were. I hoped to be a professional baseball player. When my fastball tapped out at 89, I knew I wasn't going to be that. It's like not good enough, not going to raise that bar. So I set my ambition somewhere else. But in God, in the midst of that, and all of his sovereignty and in his humor, he put me in a Baptist college where I could play and let me grow to the abilities at the top end of where I could compete and realize That dream was dead. It was not a dream that was going to happen. And he closed that door, but in the middle of all that, he brought the gospel to me and he saved me. And he rescued me from a life of futility, spending it on self. And he gave me the glorious opportunity to serve him. Is ministry easy? Not a day in my life has it ever been easy. So I, I honestly, working for a corporate, uh, cor- the corporation and the demands they had, far easier than being a pastor. That's why I'm a seminary professor now, by the way. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I mean, it's just never a day has anything about ministry been easy, but it's glorious. The Christian life is not meant to be comfortable. Quit trying to make it comfortable. It's not meant to be convenient. Quit trying to make it convenient. It's meant to be sacrificial. It's meant to cause you to go out of your way to care about other people enough to share the gospel with them. That's what it's meant to be. It's gloriously inconvenient and gloriously uncomfortable. I mean, I am an introvert by nature. You can ask my wife. She had to go out of her way to get my attention. Not really. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I go to door to door. I think I've shared this with you. I mean, I go to door to door. There's everything in me that says, why am I knocking on this person's door? They're not going to want me there. I might as well just go. I'm going to go home. What, I just changed that years ago. I said, look, I'm at a door. I have no idea what's behind it. It's like opening a present that I don't know. Somebody gave me a secret white elephant. This could be one of those white elephants I want to return. It could be one of those white elephants I'm like, yes, I love this. But I go to the door because I don't know what's coming. It's going to be a surprise, but I know what I know. Jesus loved me enough to save me. He loves him too. He loves the person behind that door. That's what I know. And somebody needs to care enough to tell them about Jesus. Hopefully that'd be me. Somebody needs to care enough to tell them about Jesus. Will that be us? Will that be Gateway? Will we be known as the church who actually cares for this community? Will people in this community even know we're here? I can just tell you there's a whole lot of them don't. Knocked on a bunch of doors and they tell you, what church? I mean, they've heard of a lot of churches. You know, I, I forget. I think I lost count. I drive by 40 churches on my way here. There's a lot of churches in this county. But there's a whole lot of people's door I knocked on. They had no idea who Gateway was or where it is. I don't know about you. I want to change that. I want them to know there's a church who actually loves Jesus Christ. That's in traveler's rest. And we love Jesus Christ enough to tell people in this community about him. I hope that's not too much to ask. That's where Paul goes. And I can summarize. I mean, he, he, here's what he says. You know, remember the purpose. Remember why you're here. Remember the example. Remember Jesus. Remember Paul's grace. Uh, his grace endured or his grace enabled life. Did, and then what Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And while I teach theology and we could go on a long, you know, little side journey into the whole issue of doctrine of election. That's not at all what Paul's doing here. Paul's using it the way it is most commonly used in Scripture as a point of encouragement. It is really used common. I mean, Jesus said, I have other sheep who must come. And my point of the matter is simply this. The gospel came to you on the way to somebody else. There are people that will believe through your testimony. If that was not the case, you would not still have life and breath right now. If all God wanted to do was take you to heaven, the moment you got saved, he'd taken you to heaven. That means he has a work for you to do. He has people for you to reach. There are other sheep who will come. That's what Paul's saying. Why do I go through life in this broken world with all the hardships? Why is it worth enduring? And here's the reason. There are other people who are going to be rescued by the same gospel that rescued you. Amen? And you get to be a part of it. Why isn't that good news? I, just, I don't get it. Why is that not good news to us? There are people who are going to believe if you will simply start sharing the gospel. If you and I will pray according to the will of God, we will have what we ask. We believe that, right? We believe in the power of prayer. Prayer is where we're called to be on our knees. We're called to be on our knees to take the gospel. One of the things we're supposed to be praying is, Lord, open doors. Paul had other churches pray for him. Open doors and grant me boldness. So here's a simple thing that just, this is part of our commitment to the gospel. Churches are dying. 
Churches only have a right to live if they're actually committed to the Great Commission. If we're not committed to the Great Commission, we don't have a right to live because we're contrary to our purpose. So one of the test cases for all of us is, are we praying for boldness? Are we praying for opportunity? If we will pray according to the will of God, and unless I'm misquoting scripture, it is the will of God for you and I to pray for opportunity and for boldness. And if I will pray for both of those things, they both will come. In weird ways. We're at a wedding. I told you, we're just wedding, right? I'm leaving to go, I'm helping clean up after a wedding on Friday night last week. And I'm cleaning up, and I come out to the car to get some, I've, I've delivered some stuff out of, to clean up, and this guy's like, hey, Mr. Mr., can I talk to you for a minute? Can I talk to you a minute? Well, I've been approached a thousand times by that line. I'm like, somebody's about to ask me for money. This is kind of a weird venue with this, because we're not really close to anything, and it's this wedding venue, and this guy's got, he's got to have a need for like that. And, and, he, and I turn around and say, well, you know, what do you need? And he's, he begins to tell me his story, and his car broke down, and I'm thought, out's going to come. Now, how much do you need? I didn't, it, and he's like, I just need to use the phone. My phone's dead. I, I kind of charge it somewhere. And I'm like, can you wait just one moment? I have to go back and make sure that there's nothing else I'm carrying out. But just give me a moment. So I collected my own thoughts because I had all the wrong read, okay? My read was all one direction. I knew how I was going to handle this. And I had the, in my thinking, and I, I went down, checked, make sure everything, they, that I was good. They were ready. So I went up and asked his name. It's Rod, Rodrigo, right? Yeah, Rodrigo. And I said, so tell me your story. So he tells me his story, his car's broken. And, and, and I said, all right. So I took him to my car, and I'm charging his phone. And for whatever reason, God's reason, his phone just doesn't want to charge. And I'm, you know, I'm waiting until Rhonda's going to be done. And next thing I know, Rhonda's done. She's to the car. I'm thinking, all right. So I'm having this conversation with Rodrigo. I said, Rodrigo, I'll take you home. Just let's go. So we drive out to uh, Marietta. How about that? To Marietta. And so I have this whole conversation with Rodrigo. I've been praying for opportunity to share the gospel and boldness to do this. And God had to kind of smack me with this guy who broke down right down from the, the wedding. And it was not at the time I felt was convenient, nor was I really thinking this way. But here comes this guy just begging me to talk to him. And he needed help. And you know what? I said, I'm just going to help him, love him. And, and then I actually, should, so I had been, uh, I forgot where I was at recently. And somebody put a track on my windshield. And I'd stuck it in my car. So I told Rodrigo, I said, Rodrigo, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. This track is all about what that means. He told me a story, his religious background, all of that. And I said, but I wondered why God had somebody leave this track on my window. But now I know. God had somebody leave this track on my window because you need this. You need to know about Christ, and I would be glad to share that with you. I took him to his home. He's invited me back. I'm going back. Rodrigo needs Christ. Pray for doors to be open and the boldness to step through them. And know this, God is more stubborn than you are. He sent that guy to me. I should have seen it. I've been praying that way. It should have just been like red light on, boom, or green light on. Golden opportunity. Here's the guy coming right to you. You're praying for opportunity. Here's your opportunity. And I'm like, no, not convenient. I'm off to something else. And it just a series of events continue to go. And finally, God got a hold of me. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I know what this is. Lord, sorry for being slow. I get it. So I took Rodrigo home. And I've got an open opportunity to continue to share the gospel with Rodrigo. That's what we're called to do. But we're not called to do this in hopelessness. We're called to do this with absolute confidence. God's in the saving business, amen? That's why we're here.
and he will continue to save sinners. And that's what Paul's saying. And when they obtain salvation, they have glory that's forever. You know what? Nothing that they're chasing in this life is forever. All the prizes, all the possessions, all the pleasures, all those things are trying to hoard to themselves to find purpose and meaning in this broken world. They all are eclipsed by eternal glory. Folks, they're suffering on the journey. On the journey of serving Christ, there's going to be difficulties. But just remember this, the day of glory is coming. No more sorrow, no more suffering. Nothing that causes tears ever again. And the glory is that which eclipses whatever I endure on this side of glory in such a way that I will remember it no more. I think I'm still going to remember, but not with any pain connected. Because it's eternal glory that eclipses everything. And that's where where we're going. That's the whole point. And I could go down and spend a lot of I mean, Paul uses the calling in that same way in other texts, and he just reminds us of the nature of the calling. But remember the purpose of the calling, and then remember the reward. And this is where he closes. Remember that you're living for promised reward. This saying is trustworthy. That's an important statement in the pastoral epistles. That's one of those, mark it down, make sure you don't miss it, double underline, this is really important, get it, statements. This is a trustworthy statement. What? If we died, then we live. Have you died to that self-life? If you died with him, if you're coming to Christ, salvation in Christ is a death to the old life, and I get raised in a newness of life. There's a death to what I was, and I become new in Christ. I have to take up my cross. That is, die to self, lay down my rebellion, and come to Jesus Christ in faith. Have you died to that life? If you died to that life, then you have life with him that is forever. If we endure, guess what? Good soldiers don't quit. We call those treasonous. Good soldiers don't quit. There's a cause worth living for. There's a cause worth dying for. Good soldiers endure the hardships of the battle. They don't quit. Have you quit? When's the last time you shared the gospel? Have you quit? If we endure, we reign. Forever reigning with Christ in a kingdom that will have no end. Forever. If we deny him, remember I told you those words would come back. Same thing with endure. You already read those in Matthew 10. Go back, you can hear the echo. Here's the echo of Matthew 10. Here's the echo of Christ's words. Here's Paul repeating those words. Remember Jesus, remember Jesus. This is what he said. If you endure to the end, those who endure to the end, the same shall be saved. If you endure, you reign. Guaranteed. If you deny, he denies you. You live life all about you. You live like the average church in America lives. It's going to die. And it chooses death, not life. What will we choose? Death or life? Remember to live. But you can only do that when you live for Christ. Remember to live. And the grace of God instills in you the courage to be the bold witness. It's not in you. It's not a call home and go... Build yourself a mirror. I can do this. I can be bold. I can be this. No, you can't. I can't. It's not in me. It's not my nature. Doesn't have to be. 
What do I need? I need grace. You know what the good news is? God's got more grace than I have need for. And more grace than you have need for. In fact, he's got his throne filled with grace that never runs out of supply. And he's always welcoming us there and calls us to come and says, I'm going to give it in your time of need. When will we stop pretending we don't have need? And actually humbly come and say, Lord, I need grace today to be the bold witness you called me to be. That the gospel that came to me is on its way to somebody else and I need to take that gospel to them. Lord, I need your help. The gospel cannot be bound by men, amen? Nothing can bound the gospel. That heart, that neighbor, your loved one, whoever they are that you're trying to give up on, don't give up on. The gospel is more powerful than their unbelief. Jesus Jesus raises people from the dead. Take the gospel with confidence. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful. That's an interesting one because you could take it as just repeating basically the verse before or the statement before. If you deny him, he's going to deny you. You say, well, if we're faithless, then that means to be without faith. But I take it really, what's the point? He's not just repeating. I think what he is doing here at the end is ending with a point of encouragement. We are people who struggle to be faithful. And our moments of faithlessness does never eclipses his faithfulness. Meaning that while I may have, maybe you haven't shared the gospel in a long time, you're feeling really defeated right now. He said, I hope I'm not denying him. Well, in one sense, yes, we are. When we're not actually doing what we've been called to do, we are to a degree. That didn't mean you walked away from the faith. It just means you're not living in obedience, right? But here's the thing. Even in our moments of faithlessness, God remains faithful. If you really are in Christ and you've been rescued, God's not leaving you. He's not forsaking you. He may have to chase him in order to produce those peaceable fruits of righteousness, but God's not leaving you. He will keep you to the end. You're not being kept by your obedience. You're being kept by Jesus Christ. That didn't change. So even when I'm faithless, even when I'm not being a very good soldier, even when I'm not, I'm trying to cut corners, make it more about me, and I'm not living for Christ like I ought, Christ remains faithful. He will keep me to the end. Now, that's never meant to excuse my faithlessness. It ought to break me. And how many people's relationship have been broken by the faithlessness of a mate? Jesus isn't abandoning you. Amen? How many countless times, if I had to add it up, have I been faithless? Jesus isn't leaving me. He's not forsaking me. But that isn't an excuse for my faithfulness. It actually ought to break me over it. He loves me. He died for me. He rescued me that I might actually live. Remember, if you're not living for Christ, you're just breathing yourself to death. And that death is forever. Deny him, he denies you. Endure, you reign. Promises that are certain. Will we live for Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you.